Today we're going to begin a deep dive into Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 through 21. So let me encourage you to begin by reading it. And over the next several days, we want to read it over and over and just soak in this text. And this is one of the most compressed and dense sections in all of Paul's writings. Paul packs a tremendous amount of theology and reality into these verses. And so it's very important to wrestle with them and try and work out the the train of thought, the logic of these passages, because they point us to some of the most important words in all of Paul's writings, all of the New Testament, and therefore some of the most important realities in the world. And what you have here is Paul's explanation of his rebuke of Peter. And this is one of the most dramatic and difficult episodes in the life of the early church. Here you have two of the pillars. Peter is the rock. Paul is the great missionary to the Gentiles. And they have this dramatic and difficult confrontation. And Paul is going to work out his, not necessarily his side of the story, but his case for why this confrontation had to happen. And now this is filled with legal-type language, so you almost need to hear this like you're hearing a great attorney who's presenting his case. So this is like Ben Matlock or Perry Mason or some skilled attorney who's going to put his case before the jury step by step, and you have to be able to follow along each step if you're going to arrive at the key conclusion, which comes in verse 20. So let's start with verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we'll pause there because here are the first two key steps to his case. And the first step is to highlight the we. That's why last week I had you read and mark the differences where you see we and then I. There's a strong shift between we to I, but it begins with the we. And so he's going to make a case for how significant the 
reconciliation and the union between Jews and Gentiles are and what should bring that about. So we're talking about the context is deep division among two types of people that in Christ's church have to be unified and have to get along. So this is not some strange issue that we don't have any experience of. And the very first step is to center on the we. This is not an abstract idea. This is not an us versus them. It's not a you versus me. It's we. This is a we issue. And so he has to go into personal reality. And that's so important. That's one of the great weaknesses of our current discussion on racial reconciliation. There can just the concept of racial reconciliation keeps it in the realm of the abstract. You'll never experience gospel transforming power until it moves from the you, the them, into the we. And so in one sense, there's no such thing as abstract racial reconciliation. There's only relational reconciliation. That's what the Bible calls us to. That's what the Sermon on the Mount focuses on. When you forgive those who have trespassed against you, it's personal, it's relational. And so the first step is to be drawn into a we. And then the second step is to bring to the fore the central question, the central issue. You said in verse 15, we are Jews by nature, not, you need kind of air quotes, not sinners from among the Gentiles. And so the central issue is what does it mean for them to maintain their Jewish self-identification? It's an identity issue. Who are we ultimately? Are we Jews or are we Gentiles? And that designation, not sinners from among the Gentiles, we're not that by nature, means we're not that by birth. Now, the reason why I say you have to keep that in air quotes is because in other places like Romans 3, Paul shows that we're all sinners by nature. All of us, Jew, Gentile, there's no difference. All stand under the law of God and condemned by it. So we're all sinners by nature. But this is almost like a tag, a title. So what he's arguing, the second step, is that if they, the we, Peter and Paul, the Jews, if they enjoy table fellowship with the Gentiles, then they will be labeled, quote-unquote, as sinners. So that's what's at stake. If they stay true to the gospel, then they will be labeled by outsiders as sinners. But if they stay true to their Jewishness, they'll be labeled righteous. So here you have a great conflict between who or what will they ultimately be loyal to? Where is their ultimate allegiance? If they do what's in line with the gospel from verse 14, people from the outside are going to call them sinners. Are they willing to own that label? Are they willing to be slandered by those they know and love? So that's the second step. This is what's at stake. And then in verse 16, Paul moves into what they all know. Knowing. Nevertheless, we know something. They now know something that has changed everything. They now know something that changes the way they view themselves, the way they view others, the way they live, who they eat with, all these things that mark their identity. They know something. And because they know something, everything has changed. So the key question to this whole section is, what do they know? How do they know it? So you think about Paul. How does he know this? He knows that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. 
How does he know that? From his missionary experience of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and having their lives radically transformed and them receiving the Holy Spirit. Peter, he knows this. He's going back on something he already knows. How does he know it? From all of Jesus' teachings, uh, seeing Jesus interact with like the Samaritan woman and things like that in John 4, and then his vision in Acts 10 and his experience at Cornelius' house. He knows this. See, they now know that a person is not considered righteous based on their observance of the law or their ethnicity. But the only thing that matters is their faith in Christ. That's the new defining mark. See, the previous defining marks were who their parents were, what economic stratus they dwelled in, were they circumcised, were they not? But now the defining mark of their life is what do they do? What do they make of? What do they think of? Do they follow? Do they believe? The defining mark has to do with their relationship to Jesus. That's the ultimate. And then we move in. Verse 16 sets up three massive questions. And I hesitate even to dive into these because um, these have been three of the most contentious and debated and wrestled with words in all of New Testament scholarship over the last 30 years. So three massive questions. What does he mean by that phrase, works of the law? And what does he mean by that phrase, righteousness? And what does he mean by faith in Christ? So these are things we'll maybe not dive in fully, but at least dip our toe into the waters. But the first two steps, the first key, and the key to this whole section is that now, Something new has happened that is the defining thing about you. And the defining thing about you is no longer about you. It's no longer something that has happened to you or something that you have accomplished or achieved. The defining thing about you is now about him. It's about something that's happened to him, your relationship to him, with him, in him. You now have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer you who even live, but Christ now lives in you, and the Son of God has loved you and given himself for you. That is the defining mark of who you are and what you do. And when we know that, everything changes. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son. 